Hello, and welcome to the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement's podcast, Wonks at Work. I'm Craig Wilson, your host, a self-declared wonk, dad of two boys, native Arkansan, and I've been the health policy director at the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement for more than a decade. On this show, we aim to demystify, boil down, and unwonk, if you will, complex topics so that you can understand how the healthcare system is working or not working for you. On episode 13, we're going to be talking about the court system and its impact on health and health care. Now, when most people think about the judicial branch of our government, health is not the first thing that comes to mind. In fact, health is not even a word in the Constitution. Instead, we tend to think about high-profile criminal cases, like the O.J. Simpson trial, or Supreme Court decisions that advance civil rights, like Brown v. Board of Education, in which Chief Justice Earl Warren and a unanimous court found racial segregation in public schools to be inherently unequal and a violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. Now, they are not the most high-profile cases, but the courts have actually been very active in the health and healthcare space. Most recently, the courts across the nation have been slammed with cases involving the extent of the government's authority during the pandemic, answering such questions as, can the government prohibit religious gatherings to mitigate the spread of COVID-19? And we all remember the 2012 case that answered the question of whether the individual mandate to purchase health insurance, as required by the Affordable Care Act, was constitutional. The court said it was, by the way. Now, courts have been active in other areas involving health and health care as well, such as establishing the right of prisoners to receive adequate medical care, affirming patient rights to refuse medical treatment to sustain life, and protecting reproductive rights. In these types of cases, health has been the focus of the case. But there are other types of cases, like divorce cases, in which health is not really the focus, but the health of the parties nonetheless has to be considered in the disposition of the case, particularly when there are children involved. Now, to discuss this in more detail, we have as our guest today my good friend, colleague, and officiant of my (laughs) wedding, Judge Mary McGowan, who was on the bench for 30 years from 1990 to 2020. And I am confident that she has seen it all in the courtroom, and I'm very excited to have her on the show. Welcome to the show, Judge, and it's great to see you. Thank you, Craig. Thanks for inviting me to be here. So before we get into the more serious stuff, what is the thing that you are enjoying most about being retired from the bench? Well, I think I have to say that I get to spend more time with my grandchildren, Tom and Mary Carter, and that's a plus for me. Uh, But also I get to read more. So I get to read what I want, when I want. Don't have to worry if I read well into the night. Don't need to see pleadings of any sort. That's right. Exactly. (laughs) That's great. So what are you reading recently? Uh, Actually, I've gotten into the John Meacham book, which uh, now I'm going to blank on the title. It's where he has done various essays in American history time, like Gettysburg. Uh Um, and it's he's just such a great writer. Yeah. Uh, so I like everything he's written, and that's not a particularly new book, but I hadn't had time to really read it because, you know, you hate to read something like that when you're tired. Yeah. You, you want to be able to devote uh, full measure <laughs> to reading. Absolutely. 
All right, so um, I asked this of all of our wonky guests, and I'm going to ask it of you too. What would you say is your theme song? That is a hard question, uh, and it comes from a musician, so I have to be on my toes. Uh, I immediately uh, thought of the song Yesterday by the Beatles. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Not because of the lyrics, but so much besides the melody, because at this stage, at least in my life, you begin reflecting sure. on things that happen to you, and then... Then I thought of Frank Sinatra's Do It My Way, and I thought that's sort of bombastic. So I settled on what my daughter, whose nickname is Molly, Mm -hmm. uh, but whose real name is Mary, uh, goes with her song that became sort of her theme song, which was Proud Mary. She has a daughter, Mary Carter. So on behalf of the three proud Marys, yes. I think I'd, I'd, I'd go with that Mary. one. Yes, which which I actually sang at Molly's wedding <laughs> with correct. my band. Yes. That's correct. I was going to go ahead and <laughs> mention that connection. too. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, tell me a little bit about the types of cases you had before you as a, as a circuit judge. Okay. Well, you know, Craig, um, that there are five subject matters mm-hmm. in Arkansas in state court and criminal civil, domestic relations, probate, and juvenile. And over the 30 years I sat, I heard everything but juvenile. Okay. Uh, and juvenile is a very specialized area. It takes a special kind of judge. Uh, there's a lot of federal overlay with mm-hmm. it. Uh, and you really have to uh, know that subject matter. And I, I think initially I may have gone out uh, and heard a couple of cases for some of my colleagues, but I quickly learned that I needed more expertise to do that. So Mm -hmm. I heard everything else, though. Wow. Okay. So my understanding, though, is you you presided over the first drug court in Arkansas. Is that that right? Uh, It's sort of. um, of. the, The reason is what predated my drug court was a court in Lone Oak County. They got a rural court grant. They had like two participants. Lone Oak is a single county in their uh-huh. circuit. Uh, but Chief Justice Jack Holt Jr. then asked if I would uh, take on doing one in Pulaski County. And um, I did uh, because he had Jack Lessenberry, who was retiring, sort of initiated. And then I took it on. There was no money. Um, to continue until Vic Snyder, a doctor, um, an attorney, and yeah. an attorney, <laughs> and a Very congressman nice. at the time, rescued me yeah. and got quite a bit of money. And President Clinton was president at the time. They had a whole drug court program set up in the Department of Justice, oh, okay. so they were we were able to fund it that way. Um, I did have the first veterans treatment court okay. uh, in the state, and those um, I helped write that statute. And the reason, especially, it's pertinent in this conversation is you didn't have to just have a substance abuse problem; you could have mental illness right. separately. So we had a lot of returning vets from our various conflicts across the world that had PTSD. Sure. And 
uh, they needed help getting treatment. Mm -hmm. And that was the key. You could set veterans treatment courts up where there was a VA hospital. Mm -hmm. And of course, we had the large one. Very different treatment system. Exactly. Uh, But it was very successful. They tended to mind better. They observed rules better. And we had every imaginable vet. I mean, from every Persian Gulf War, you know, every kind of uh, conflict that we had had was sort of across the board, all age groups. uh, But they they did very, very well in that structured environment. So how does it function? You say it's very structured. um, It mainly meant that they had to, they reported to me to court once a month. And in that time frame, they will have been with counselors. They will have been um, doing group therapy besides individual therapy, keeping medical appointments, you know, whatever. And, of course, drug testing for those that did have substance abuse problems. And all this is Uh, subject to a, a, is it subject to a plea of guilty? Yes, because, yes, good question. Because initially, uh, the drug court that we had was only for low-lying, really, misdemeanors. And so when uh, Congressman Snyder got help to get me money, we set it up so that it was post. It needed to be different than the way it was. And so it was what we call post-adjudication. Okay. So they entered pleas of guilty. But that really widened the whole area of what they were charged with because they were able to uh, plead guilty. Plead and then almost in all cases, their records could be expunged oh, at the okay. end of successful. And, and the period of sentence was generally three years because they were usually charged with felonies that you would have looked mm. at easily a uh, sentence of three years. Okay. So any success stories that... Yes. I Again, the veterans were some of the most successful, and there were a couple that came because they came to Arkansas. They had Arkansas ties or whatever. They were arrested in other jurisdictions. So I had five, actually, interstate transfers Mm. for oversight of treatment and then with them— hopefully making it rather than go back yeah. to the various they both coasts New Jersey Pennsylvania California uh, and they were it was some of the most heartwarming because they were able to not only receive and get you know a cleared uh, but then they followed up with education mm-hmm. and actually many of the defendants, either came back to see me, wrote letters or whatever, and a large segment went in, especially out of the VA, went into counseling mm. and uh, and into treatment, some kind of treatment uh, folks. And uh, I had a couple of attorneys, huh. uh, not in veterans treatment, in drug court, and uh, they were successful. They were successful with everything, but they still had to petition the governor for restoration of gun rights. <laughs> Oh, interesting. And okay. I could write letters for them, but it was a governor's decision on the on the gun right. Oh, it always comes back to gun rights somehow. Right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, I, I know that even outside of the drug court, you often dealt with health-related issues, particularly in domestic relations cases, I'm sure. Uh, what are some of the issues that, that you dealt with, and how were they resolved? Well, I— 
one of the most frightening things that happened to me early on, and I just wasn't paying that close attention, again, early on uh, in, in the 90s, uh, a woman was suffering from uh, paranoid schizophrenia, and mm. she had locked herself and children into her home. And um, this was coming on a case, this was a treatment case, uh, because as you know, under probate, you can uh, you can treat people for uh, various illnesses. And so what dawned on me then was, though, that one of the children was the age of Molly at the same time. And she was keeping her children, because she was so paranoid, in, and mm-hmm. they could not get to school. They could not do wow. what they needed to do. And I was so struck by that. I never thought about what can then happen in terms of later and whether or not they really needed to be with her when she was ill and needed to be treated. Um, And so I I had a conversation with the principal at my daughter's grade school, and she said, well, you know, like your child enters and she can read at first grade, other kids enter first grade, they know their alphabet. She said, other kids enter, they don't know their last names. Yeah. And depending on the circumstance, a lot of times it's because the parent is suffering from something that needs to get treated and get helped mm-hmm. along the way. And so you did see it a lot of times, again, in divorce when they're fighting over custody and they don't want to have anything, no chinks in the armor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was always harder to get them to be very honest about the fact that they were getting treated, and, and for mental health, because if they had cancer, I mean, they would yeah. be able to admit it more easily, but that stigma is still there. It's certainly early in the 90s. Yeah. Oh, yes. Know. No, very much so. It's very not, much not so. as much of a stigma That's now. That's right. I, it, I talked with... Um, with uh, Mayor Frank Scott on a on a previous episode, and he he was talking about the stigma of, of mental health and how he had dealt with some of those issues, and he felt it important to talk about it. Yes, and so j- yes, it's, it's even now, you know, the stigma still exists, but certainly, but in the nothing 90s. like that's wow. right. That's exactly right. So, uh, what is the most shocking situation from a health standpoint that you've encountered in the courtroom? Probably the. Um, inability of folks actually the first I did think about the woman that was paranoid but a lot of it also had to do with the fact that health in and of itself not just mental health Mm -hmm. but health gets sort of just cast aside and it was constant when we would find out uh, more because in drug court you have a team Mm -hmm. The prosecutor has to agree, and then you get the probation officers and social workers and whatever. And so when you discuss the cases, you'd realize, I mean, you'd have some people that were just literally living on candy bars and Cokes. Mm -hmm. And not that I think I eat the best way, or (laughs) unfortunately I eat too much in the sweetness range, but um, it was frightening that there is such a... um, misunderstanding of actually what you should be doing in terms uh, that would be healthy both for your body and your mind. Uh And that was a frightening realization. I just, 
I think I never realized that maybe people weren't just eating salads or, <laughs> or, or whatever. They were basically just eating a whole lot of junk. Yeah. And, and, and even in, in like the domestic relations cases, I mean, you know, the focus is, is on the how, how do you separate most efficiently, right? Right. Um, and, and so you're dealing with financial issues and with custody issues right. and with education and, and often health and health insurance. And those things are kind of a... An ancillary. Absolutely. And they do not want, generally, because we've still made it so that in, you know, a good number of cases, it it still means that people think you have to show that the other party is bad in some way. And so for someone to say they need to be with their therapist or they're going to see a nutritionist and they're trying to get back into shape and exercise or whatever, they think, uh, Oh, good. You don't get you not spending quality time with a child uh, then, mm. and so it can be used against people too, which is not That's really not a good thing, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so, what can the court system, including those attorneys who are before you, do better to address health related issues? I think just become more aware yeah. of them and and be ready then to make arguments that this that this is needed, mm-hmm. that, you know, folks need to pay attention to their health, and it can make a difference in terms of their own lifestyle choices and then also what's happening. And so if they're aware of that component, they could utilize it to benefit their clients. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a little bit of a change of, of direction here. Uh, in 2017, the, the General Assembly took some steps uh, toward criminal justice reform, including the establishment of crisis stabilization units, which we've talked on this show about before. Um, are there short-term successes that you've seen from these reforms, and what more should be done? Uh, as you know, there are four mm-hmm. units uh, throughout the state, and the governor, Governor Hutchinson, um, was very good. His nephew, Jeremy, was in the uh, state Senate, Senate yeah. and he sort of led their um, getting, I'm t- we're talking millions of dollars in establishing them. And so I was at the Little Rock one mm-hmm. when it was opened and toured it and knew um, the doctor that was in charge of it. And then I sat on um, a criminal justice committee that our county judge, Barry Hyde, had formed, and I was on the subcommittee on the crisis stabilization unit. The, the key difficulty, I think, is it's voluntary. Mm -hmm. So to be able to convince folk that that would be a better place for them than the jail, I think, becomes very difficult. Uh, And police officers that patrol know who the people are that are loitering or, you know, doing some, they're worried about them for their own safety purposes, not just others. Um, but it's so much better because the jail, and this, I went in 1992 to a conference in Minneapolis about the number of people that suffer from mental health or other health issues that were just stacking up in the jails. Yeah. And it it's just too much. Right, it's, and, and you, you may not have read it, but we actually did some analysis for the, the Pulaski County and the Sebastian County units yes. and looked at their bookings. And then we looked in the claims, and and a third had a serious mental illness diagnosis, not just right. a minor depression, right. a serious mental illness. Right. A third of the population. Right. So you're absolutely right. Right. And the problem is then that they become um, 
it's expensive. It's expensive all the way around. Mm-hmm. And so if you can get them into the crisis stabilization unit, which is very nice and quiet, mm-hmm. and then help them understand why they need to either be taking some kind of medication or at least see some counselors and keep them out of the jail population, mm-hmm. it is so much better yeah. uh, for everyone. So it's not the the big hurdles of getting those crisis stabilization units built and staffed are over. Now the hurdle becomes trying to get the message out right. there to that population. Yeah, and that's ongoing work. Huh? Right, <laughs> right. Uh, so... There have been multiple attempts at tort reform in Arkansas over the last 20 years, as you know. Do you see any middle ground here? Well, part of it is we're not trying the the cases really anymore. I mean, it is terribly expensive to mount a medical malpractice case. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're just not being tried because there are few firms, I think, that can devote as much money in the hopes that they would then be able to recover them. Um so I, so my answer basically is probably no, uh, but I don't know that it's as big an issue anymore. Just because from a reality check, you're just not having as many tried. Mm-hmm. Whether or not it's good or bad, um, I couldn't say. But I know that I only tried uh, three, and to that actually went to jury. A lot of them get filed and they get settled. Settle and court, yeah. uh, so I think it's not, it, I don't think it will happen though th- via legislation. Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to be the parties trying to work out other solutions. Okay. Yeah, I, the settlement issue is something that people don't think about. 95% right. of these cases Absolutely. never even make it to court. Absolutely. Um, so. And and the medical profession, I have to say, does a pretty good job of patrolling Policing its own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So a um, little bit of a different question. We met uh, 15 years ago when I first got involved in Gridiron, mm-hmm. uh, which is a political spoof that local lawyers stage on a biennial basis. And unfortunately, due to the pandemic, we missed last year's production, uh, as well as a lot of other productions around the state uh, and other public events. So I I just want to know what event or production are you most looking forward to? And then second follow-up question, what can we look forward to in Gridiron next year? Okay, well, first of all, Gridiron. I mean, (laughs) Gridiron 2022. Uh, And a lot of work, I have to tell you, had already been done uh, before on the other. But I am anxious that the rep, Argenta... Uh, community theater, all of the theater uh, venues that we have get to come back. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you how I've missed that ability to go and see something that's just stirring mm-hmm. uh, emotionally and um, on stage. Yeah. And it's just um, sad in so many ways because, again, this whole pandemic that's made us all sort of have to insulate ourselves Mm. and not be around people and you miss the ability to interact and also see um, some of what's going on with humanity and so I'm I'm hopeful that uh, this next in this next year I'll just or this year I should say but I'm hoping in this year it will begin to um, 
happen that we be, are able to see more productions. Yeah. But I'm definitely, I mean, 2022 for Gridiron, I think surely we will surely. be able, surely, <laughs> surely we'll be back. Yeah, you know, uh, in all of this isolation, for those of us who, you know, particularly stage performance, mm-hmm. you know, we've all we all we've mm-hmm. all got Netflix and we've binged on Netflix and you know Amazon Prime right. and all of the great productions that they that they have. There's just nothing like live stage performance. No, yeah, absolutely. Particularly in the theater, uh, for for me, that has been a, a major gap. Um, for for folks like me who um that's that's their outlet right yeah um and uh so i i think it's going to be great for for us to, to be able i to think see. we're coming back and i i have to say too i'm very my grandson tom who's 3 who takes uh dance yeah. <laughs> from your wife and your mother-in-law um and with my youngest son and your yeah. and with your youngest yeah. son i was just going to say that too um pate and so I'm looking forward to at least their performance right. on stage at the rep. I mean, I'm I'm glad that they were able to uh, get that set up and that we actually can come and see them. We've been there for parents' uh, uh, day, yeah, yeah. but uh, it's a treat. It's a treat to get to see them. See them with the lights on. And the, yeah, it's great. It's great. All right, so my final question. I want to know what you're most proud of in your career. I, I thought I was glad that you asked that to give me the opportunity to respond, and I thought for a long time about it. And I think I have to say it's the drug court and veterans treatment court because that whole experience, um, I saw incredible change. I mean, people looked different. Mm-hmm. You know, they looked healthier. They had more confidence. Mm-hmm. They uh, felt like they could go out and do things. They could get better jobs. They could go back to school. They could do all kinds of things. And so seeing that, which you don't normally do, I mean, you know, especially, you know this as an attorney, but a a case is over. It's just the next case comes down the pike, and you don't hear from people. You don't see them. But that was just radical changes uh, in people's approach everything was changing plus the interaction of working with the people the counselors themselves as well as probation officers uh, because everyone there was was trying their best to help people get through it and get out of Mm -hmm. the criminal justice system and that's not something you see uh, routinely but it is why there are now drug courts throughout this entire state there are now mental health courts, mm-hmm. a whole other version over in Fort Smith and then down, I think, in Marion. Uh, but it's true across the country uh, because you could actually see tangible results of work that you put in, whether or not you were a counselor or a probation officer checking on them or uh, the attorneys or whatever. And so I think that... That development of being able to get that up and running, I can tell you times going over to the legislature mm-hmm. in the 90s when, and, and rewriting some statutes and then dealing with uh, Governor Beebe, who is always very supportive, Governor Hutchinson, who has been uh, unbelievably supportive. Uh, and so dealing with all the different prongs of government 
and watching everyone mm-hmm. be willing to try to see if they couldn't stay. Because the fact of the matter is, if you talk about it long enough, everybody's got somebody in their family yeah. that, you know, had some problems. Yeah. And um, and we had we we're still treating people that that drink mm-hmm. too much. And I'll put a plug in now for Hunter Biden's book. That one, if you read it, it'll just make you cry throughout the entire book. Huh. But he's he very much confesses his addictions, um, and it also, and 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 what he's doing mm-hmm. about them. Uh, because I was on the bench long enough to see us go from cocaine to crack, to methamphetamine, mm-hmm. to opiates. Yeah. I mean, it's and alcohol always was you know thrown in there, and so. Anytime you can break some of those cycles, uh, it's a win-win. And uh, even if you have people that relapsed when they knew they relapsed, I was a heavy cigarette smoker. It didn't take me, uh, you know, I I didn't quit the first time I tried to quit. Mm -hmm. And so I know what addiction can be like. And it's the most fulfilling thing to see people actually pull it off when they're able to just rid themselves of it. That's great. I mean, and it's very evident that the court system and people's physical and mental health are intertwined. Right? Absolutely. So it's great to Absolutely. see when those two sectors can work together to make something happen that otherwise would Absolutely. Happen. And that is a product of, I, I have to say, my generation on the bench, because that's when it really took off across the country. It began in the uh, 80s in Miami, Florida, of all places, where you can, where a guy, a judge just thought, I'm so sick of sending these people yeah. back to jail. So there's got to be a better solution. But then it just took off, and now it is um, all through the United States, just pretty much everywhere. And it is the thing that we need to be doing. And I'm this pandemic has thrown a little bit of kink into it, as it's thrown yeah. into everyone's <laughs> lives and everything everyone does. But I'm still confident that it will be, it will resurge and uh, come back, and it makes a major difference. Yes, yeah. yeah. Well, this has been a great conversation. And I've, Thanks. It's been great to I'm have just, you. I've just show. enjoyed it, Greg. <laughs> Thank you so much for asking me, because I really feel like it's a way, again, of connecting uh, with people and making them aware. A lot of times people are not as aware. Right. And to show that judges um, are humans, too. Right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Which you, we tend to, as you know, the robitus, yeah. as they say. So, uh, And that's why also that was another side aspect where because mo- many of those people were so afraid. They were so afraid to be in court. And uh, you should never be afraid in court, but you should also, also always mind. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much again. Thank you, Craig. Thank you for listening to Wonks at Work. You can listen to our bi-weekly podcast on our website, achi.net. A special thanks to the Bobby L. Roberts Library of Arkansas History and Art, which is a part of the Central Arkansas Library System for allowing us to use their studio to record. If you have any topics you would like for us to consider, please email us at ACHI at ACHI.net. As a reminder, the views, information, and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are solely those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement. The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. 
The podcast does not constitute medical, legal, or other professional advice or services. We hope you've enjoyed our latest episode. And again, thanks for listening.